Hey, welcome to the So To Speak podcast. I'm your host, John Beadle. Welcome to, welcome to the podcast. Um, if you want to find us on Facebook and join the group with So To Speak, just search So To Speak. We're there. It's an open public forum. Uh, but ultimately, our presence online is not what defines us. What defines us is our gatherings together in person. Um, because when we gather in person, we can actually make the connection that lasts and that actually get, brings us the most hope and meaning and purpose. And so our next event is going to be on April the 20th. Our first event was on March the 16th, and I would say it was a tremendous success. I was so surprised by the amount of people that showed up. Um, the fundamental assumption that I'm operating under is that is that the, opposi- the opposite of... Uh, of, of conflict is not peace. The opposite of conflict is war. And so conflict is a necessary piece of the peace process. And if you don't have conflict, then you can't actually have a real peace or a lasting peace with uh, people around people around you. Now, of course, the way the economy works, insurance, um, various consumers, goods and services in our communities, uh, they sort of exist in a way to keep us separated from each other. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not a Marxist here, but I will use the word that Marx uses, which is that our goods and services have had a way of increasingly distancing ourselves from one another, as well as from the actual products that we purchase, the things that actually um, give us life and flourishing and, uh, and have a habit of alienating us, right, from one another without being made whole. And so I think it's really important that, uh, that we start these antidotes to the chaos groups um, where we meet and discuss in depth our issues and our concerns, our contradictions, and the virtues as well as our vices. So part of the the journey that we've been on is learning how to have those conversations. And what we learned the first time was that, hey, it's really not that easy. And even you may even have a room full of people who who are very opinionated. You know, I'm one of those people. I'm a very opinionated person. I have very strong beliefs about a lot of different subjects, and part of the journey is learning how to be humble enough to actually take a step back and um, admit when you're wrong, admit when you've overgeneralized, and uh, admit when you don't actually know what you're talking about, (laughs) and not allowing the emotions to get in the way or the news to determine uh, what you should should use as your, your rudder for navigating the waters of this life. So today I'm actually going to, you know, in this show I talk about current events, um, but I also talk about big ideas, and today you have both of those in one post um, of this podcast. So I'm going to be talking about the first ever woman arrested for being racist. Stay tuned. I think when you look at the world and you consider everything that's going on, it is incredibly difficult to find one's uh, groundedness, to place your feet firmly on the ground. Um, and what I mean by that is, it's hard to know. It's hard to know, um, first of all, what's going on <laughs> because of all the information and the intensity by which that information flows, and even harder still to then figure out who we are. Especially given that um, the world is, you know, we used to think of ourselves as identity first, who we are, and then you reach your metaphys- metaphorical tentacles into the world, right? 
But now everything seems to be environment first, inner life second. I think this is evident, at least self-evident even, just by looking at social media and seeing what's out there. Um, Or look at the the rise of opinion columns that are becoming more famous than just your typical fare of journalism, right? And um, and so part of what I want to do is I want to quickly go over this article written by the New York Times about a South African woman, a white woman named Vicky Momberg, who was arrested for a charge of racism. Okay, and uh, the author of this article is Richard Perez Pena. It was published um, on the New York Times website March 28, 2018. I'm going to include this link um, when I post this, um, this podcast episode. All right, this is what he says. Mr. Pena says, If Vicky Momberg had, had, had only unleashed a high-volume tirade at the South African police officers, video of it would have been of mere passing interest. But her repeated use of a racial slur, unfamiliar to most Americans, but explosive in South Africa, made her notorious and led to demands to make her an example. Okay, demands to make her an example of what? Okay, here's my, my thought of it, okay? Uh, okay, when people say this, this is when they say make make an individual an example, what they're trying to do is justice for the future. And when you try to do justice for the future, that's a very, very precarious position to be in. Because then you invariably do some sort of unjust... Um, equivocation like in other words you you invariably like punish a person too much all right and then you create variables uh that backfire inevitably backfire and cause even more suffering and damage you know um and so it's a form of violence that i i personally do not approve of right i believe in due process i believe in fairness justice um concepts that seem to be um unbelievably out of date these days Okay, well, why is she notorious? Here's what it says. On Wednesday, Ms. Momberg, a white woman, gotta note that, became the first person in South Africa to be sent to prison for using racist language against someone. According to prosecutors and legal experts, specifically she hurled the term uh, kafir, that's how you say it, considered the most offensive racial slur in South Africa, so radioactive socially that it is often referred to as the K-word. The 2016 viral video of her outburst at police officers who responded to her report of thieves breaking into her car, set off a national furor and made Ms. Momberg a symbol of the racism that persists a generation after the collapse of apartheid. Partly because of that video, um, uh, let's see, partly because of that video viewed repeatedly on social media and news sites, the parliament may take up a bill that would make prosecution for hate speech more common. Um, and then it talks about how the judge that, tr- that tried her, that tried her case, uh, refused to allow bail. She couldn't get off on bail, pending an appeal, and then the officers led her away from the courtroom. Her lawyer, Kevin Lawler, declined to comment, and the decision was met, this is what, according to this reporter, mostly with celebration on social media um, in a majority black country where profound inequality coexists with memories of an apartheid system. da 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 Let's see. Um, then the article makes mention that many white people criticize the prosecution. I don't really know what that means, to be honest. As I'm reading that, I'm going, okay, what, well, where are you getting that data? What do you mean by many white people criticized? Okay, so this is clearly uh, the author is playing into a narrative. If you can't find evidence uh, to support your narrative, then um, I think people don't realize that they're being opened up to potential propaganda. And that's why skepticism and criticism is incredibly important. We have to look at these things 
clearly. All right, so let me continue with the article. Okay, this concept has been applied mostly. So there have been other times people have been taken to court for this issue, but mainly for mainly in civil suit issues, right? So this is like person to person. Um, and then they talk about, the article goes on to talk about how people have complained about this. And then they say, um, this is what Ahmed uh, Kathrata Foundation, which is an anti-racism group, the executive director of that foundation, Nash- Nishan Bolton said this, past racists who have come to court have been given very small fines and have been treated very leniently and it didn't serve any deterrence. And then the, the final part of the quote is, I think this will be a deterrent. And what happened was she, uh, this woman, was complaining to the police because her, her car had been broken into, this white woman. Uh, the officers were not white, uh, they were black. Um, and, and she basically started using this extremely offensive word to describe all um, Africans who were not white, right? She kind of went on this big rant about it. Um, and so the article goes on to talk about how she was given three years of prison time for this as a deterrent. And the judge even said that. Um, now, let me get something straight here. First of all, there are there are laws like this all over the, especially in the, in the European world, like in Austria. You're not allowed to. It's actually illegal to deny that the Holocaust happened. I mean, you can go to go to court, be brought to court for denying the Holocaust. And the reason why that's the case is because is because Austria and countries like Germany have a very very rough history with how they've treated um, Jewish people in the past, right? So there are specifically laws put in place. Uh, same thing in South Africa, right? South Africa had a very harsh, has a very harsh history with apartheid, very oppressive, racist history um, that was a much more recent than the civil rights era in America, I mean, uh, where this kind of thing was happening. And what we're seeing here, I think, is a, is clearly the evidence that, you know, our world is not healed of racism or it's not healed of discrimination or um, anger between the race, between people's races. And we're seeing that um, people still very much identify um, in groups, at least of which have to do with, I mean, at least with race, right, in South Africa. And this is very important. Now, for one, does Austria have to um, does does making it illegal to deny the fact that the Holocaust happened actually deter people from believing otherwise? Is that actually something that works? Or is it just a political show? Right? Um, of course what this woman did in South Africa, this is terrible. What a terrible thing to say. These are men who have come to help you and you're going to use that opportunity to use this word over and over again, this extremely offensive word. Um... No, of course it's terrible. Of course. Of course it's awful. Is it a deterrent? No. Now, here's a quick thought on deterrence. This, the same kind of thing happens with the death penalty, I think, where people um, assume that if you make certain crimes punishable by death, executed by the state, then that would stop people. Hence the word deter, deterrence. Like, there'd be a deterrence. But there's not necessarily any correlating evidence that supports that view. In fact, there's been evidence that supports perhaps that the very fact that people know that what they're doing may bring them to the point of execution actually encourages them to perhaps do things in the midst of the crime that is happening 
that it goes far beyond what they would have otherwise, maybe if they knew that that crime would not necessarily result in execution. So this is the way it works. A deterrent can can work as long as it's done within um, within a certain proportion. Otherwise, the bell curve t- turns, and then you have a whole different other kind of problem on your hands, perhaps a more violent problem. And I'm wondering if perhaps this is one of those situations. Was three years of prison worth five minutes, or, or however long it was? Is three years of prison deserve what, what this woman deserves? Even though she was grossly racist in her language and grossly offensive, is that really going to work? Is that really going to heal a community still um, torn by the history of their, uh, the history of chains in that country, the history of discrimination is, and and racial disparity? Is that really going to work, or will it have the opposite effect? I don't know. I'm not sure. So, a word on the law. You know, I believe in due process. Some people believe uh, that most recently on what's called the preponderance of evidence rather than due process. Due process uh, requires that you have more than a reasonable doubt before you convict somebody, right? So I'm worried that convicting someone on the basis of being racist or for saying a racist thing is perhaps too broad a category by which you can set a precedent for law and, and, and perhaps... Um, create, like I said, a bigger problem on your hands. The preponderance of evidence, though, instead of due process, works like this. Basically, you have to provide overwhelming evidence that you're not what you're being accused of being. So essentially what it is is guilty until proven innocent, whereas due process is innocent until proven guilty. So with a lot of these cases... Uh, it seems that they rely upon the second method of justice as opposed to the first. And when I'm worried about, on a legal standpoint, I'd be worried. If I were a lawyer, I would say, oh my goodness, but what if this backfires? What if this has the opposite effect? What if um, the people in this country uh, rise up and as a result of feeling discriminated against for the color of their skin, whether they agree with us or not, in spite of the fact that maybe the country does tell their, their white citizens that they... Um, are not um, being discriminated against because they can't be. They're white. Um, despite that, they may still feel that way. People still feel things, right? And they act on those feelings. Um, and this is a kind of an odd ruling amidst the backdrop that's happening in South Africa right now of a president who is sort of greenlighting uh, the seizure of these properties of white farm owners in the name of racial justice. Um, and the seizing of property is, of course, a extremely extremely dark image to put in the consciousness of the Western world. Lots of horrible things have come after the seizing of property. So it's not enough for us just to kind of look on and say, well, that's interesting. No, you have to think about it. You have to think about all of the factors playing into what is happening there. Now, one of my favorite authors of all time is a novelist by J.M. Coetzee. And he has a book called Disgrace, which actually does a tremendous job of touching on the social and, and racial disparity in this country, in South Africa through the lens of this white professor. And, um, and in that book, there's sort of this, he, he's, he provides the, the reader with the understanding of the way um, whites and blacks in the country sort of interact post-apartheid, that it's not exactly as, it's not as clear as we might think. So 
that's just what some things to think about as far as like legal things. Now, now for speech, obviously everybody everybody listening to this podcast knows that I'm a free speech fundamentalist. You know, I think that um, that speech is the mechanism by which we perfect our common life together. If people don't talk, there's no peace. There can be no peace, and uh, a peace without talking is a piece of the dead. It's the piece of a graveyard, right? And the bodies pile up. It's not a piece that's real, lasting, cultural, colorful life. Um, a piece that people can actually get behind and get excited about. So am I excited about a place in a developed world that criminalizes people for saying horrible things? No. Now, is that what this woman is doing? I don't know. I think she's actually not doing that. I think she's making threats. Now, if she were criminal, if she's criminalized on the basis of making threats, that's not the kind of speech that I'm talking about, nor that I encourage. If you make threats, that's not really free speech. You're just making threats. You can be brought to court for that. You can be tried for that and thrown in jail for that. And you should. If you physically threaten someone's life, that should, that should be a problem, legally speaking, for that person. So we have to be careful, I think, you know, when we examine these kinds of issues. They're not as easy as we think they are. I've just spent the last, well, look at the timer, 14 minutes trying to unpack all of this and it's incredibly difficult the deeper that you go but I want to know your thoughts what do you think about the situation do you agree disagree Um, let me know send me a message of course find us on Facebook at so to speak and also on Twitter speak underscore official and we have an event coming up of course in the the end of April Um, if you have any questions please send those in don't forget to subscribe and share I'll see you soon bye